How great to be with you this morning. And uh, we have nothing to say over what happens in the weather. And that is a good reminder to us. There are things within our control. There are things human beings have brought ever more powerfully under our control. But when it comes to weather, all we've gotten better at is prediction. And that's still inexact. It's just a reminder to us that the zone of what we control and the zone of what we do not control includes more in the second category than in the first. The ancients saw themselves simply as victims of hapless fate or perhaps some kind of combat among the gods. We understand as the psalmist, for example, helps us to see that the one true living God brings the weather that he wills, shows his glory, even thunders his voice in the thunder to remind us that he and not we is in control. Our task is, however, not so much to try to hear God's voice in the wind, but God's voice in the Word. I invite you to turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 16. A bit of an adventure this morning with a story that will come only at the end. A bit of adventure in a text of Scripture that I think you will find particularly gripping, potentially surprising, and always, because this is the living and breathing Word of God, always in the full power of God's voice. In Luke chapter 16, as you know, the passage begins with the parable of the dishonest manager. Having dared to write a book on the parables, I had to write on this one. It, uh, it's bizarre. It's meant to be. The parables are meant to surprise, and it does surprise. Jesus appears to be saying, model your Christian life on a crook. I think the bottom line in that was that the crook saw opportunities for being crooked and took them. And Jesus seems to be saying to his disciples, if you think like a crook more often and actually see opportunities for the gospel, you need to seize them. Don't go through life as if you don't see opportunities. Then there's another middle passage on the law and the kingdom. And then Jesus, after speaking of divorce and adultery, speaks of two men, the rich man and Lazarus. Let's hear the text together. Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. 
But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from you from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send into my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is God's word given by the Holy Spirit through Luke, transmitted faithfully through the history of the Christian church and preserved by the power of the Holy Spirit and confessed and read and preached by Christians for 2,000 years. This word comes to us as fresh as if it were just delivered and as sure as the Holy Spirit. What exactly do we have here? Well, there are really two alternatives, but there was little debate in the history of interpretation until more recent times. I think we can understand how that came about. It is parabolic in form. So in other words, yes, I included it among the parables in my book on the parables of Jesus. It follows a parabolic form in terms of the way the story is narrated and the structure of the story. But, but there are a couple of eccentricities. There, there are some features of this particular passage that aren't exactly parabolic. For one thing, you have two characters and they're named, and one of them we already know. That would be Abraham. And clearly when you're talking about Abraham, you're talking about a major figure in the history of Israel and in covenant history and in the flow of the Old Testament and in Israel's identity and also an identity essential for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Abraham is not merely a figure in a parable. It's not just any rich man. This is Abraham man. And then there is the poor man. And he's also named which is unique in the parabolic literature. If this is a parable, it's an unusual parable because you have Lazarus named, you have Abraham named. So you have an intersection of some narrative passage, unquestionably narrative, and historical figures, unquestionably historical. But that, that's kind of a low-level debate among New Testament scholars. There's nothing massively at stake in terms of interpreting the passage based upon whether or not you come to the conclusion that it's a, an unusual parable or a parabolic text that's not exactly a parable. Not a whole lot at stake there. And until you get to the 19th and especially the 20th centuries. And the difference in the context between the period before and the period after is the rise of liberal theology and the denial of hell. The denial of hell as eternal conscious punishment. It was the rise of that heresy that led many to look to this passage and say, look, right here in this passage, what we have 
is a very clear, detailed description of final judgment and its consequences. We even have references to the physical torment of those who are in hell, and we have a verdict that is absolutely final. No one from here can go to you forever, nor can anyone where you are come to where we are forever. And it was precisely because the first major doctrine, certainly here in the United States, and, and, and this is incredibly well documented, when theological liberalism first began to emerge, particularly in the United States, earlier than you might imagine, even in the 17th century by some reckonings, even as theological liberalism began to raise its, its head and you know, it would eventually become organized into Unitarianism, the denial of hell and particularly the denial of hell as eternal conscious punishment was the central first doctrine denied. It became, as one of the Latin writing early American theologians said, odium theologicum. It's the odious doctrine. What kind of sophisticated people can hold to a doctrine like eternal conscious punishment of the unrepentant and unbelieving in hell? And so Christianity is going to have to be revised in order to remove this odious doctrine and for it to have a sophisticated place first of all the concern was in the new world. Similar thoughts had already been a part of the European conversation, but there's a direct line in terms of theological liberalism from those early denials of hell and the organization of those churches that particularly were so offended by hell and the development of Unitarianism in the United States and theological liberalism. So by the time you come to, say, the 20th century, the debate over whether or not this passage is, is a didactic passage and not a parable or it's a parable, that was a pretty hot debate in some circles, particularly um, in the Bible college circuit and the Bible conference circuit. So I, I, I did dare to write about this, and I, I didn't dare to avoid rendering a verdict, and I do so as a theologian. I simply say, the best I can tell, it is a parable that includes didactic features, which is to say, I think it's clearly a parable because of the, of the structure of the, of the actual passage itself. But it is a parable that includes historical references and a very clear doctrinal teaching about hell. And since Jesus is speaking this parable, and in a context in which he's already been dealing with all kinds of issues, and after a parable that was already a head-scratcher in itself... It seems to me that Jesus was using this particular passage, this opportunity of teaching, and yes, this parable in order to catch his hearers off guard. Now, about that, a passage like Matthew chapter 13 helps us to see that not only did the parables often throw the crowd off when it came to understanding them, it often confused the disciples. So much so that Jesus had to explain why he teaches in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. To you it has been given, he said to the disciples, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. 
To the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. To the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away from him. Parable comes thus as a test. Do you get it or do you not get it? If you don't get it, it's not a good sign. Sometimes it's like a delayed fuse, right? You don't look like you understand what I'm talking about. I guarantee you the men in this room who are married know exactly what I'm talking about. You have a conversation with the woman you so dearly love. You leave with a general sense you think of what you just talked about. Driving in the car, a couple hours later, thinking about something else, all of a sudden, aha, that was what we were talking about. It's a shocking moment. I get no evidence that it happens in reverse. Women are just such, so much more perceptive in conversation than men are. The only way women are not perceptive in conversation is perceiving how little the man may be perceiving. <laughs> but maybe it's just because it takes us longer. Aha! That's what it was about. Okay. Parables are like that. If we're honest, they're familiar to us because we've been in church, we've been hearing them preach, we've been reading them in the text, we may have studied them, we may have considered them. But in the fresh treasures given to us in Scripture are fresh moments of recognition from the parables. There's another thing about this particular parable, as we will see, it ends with an explosion. You may not have felt it, but it's there. It begins, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and linen and uh, who feasted sumptuously every day. It's, it's an exaggerated picture. Uh, one of the ways it's, it's exaggerated is that even the king, according to a lot of records, didn't wear purple every day. It didn't, didn't quite live like this, but even if he did, he was a king. You know, one of the interesting things, and even the ancient Greeks talked about this, is the rise of what we now in our time call the nouveau riche. This is new money. This is the guy who didn't have a whole lot, now he's got a lot of money and wants to live like a king. It's very interesting. You can drive around Louisville and see replicas of, uh, of French chateaus, of English manor houses. They're just trying to build their own. They, they want to be like, they're going to live like an American duke, the baron, an earl. And by the way, this problem was, was certainly present in other cultures, in more hierarchical cultures. It was present in uh, something like uh, England, but in a very restrained way because it's just not done. In other words, you had a lot of social censure if you tried to build a house that looked just like a duke might live in it because, after all, we all know you are not a duke. <laughs> yes, but in the United States, anybody can be a duke. You can make some money and you can build a ducal palace and a mansion and you can live in it. This man feasted sumptuously every day. I got to tell you what, that wears me out thinking about it. 
Every day's Thanksgiving. Every and without the Thanksgiving, just the food. It's every day's a banquet. Every day's a feast. I just want to be honest. I don't think I could live that way. Most of us, if we're honest, have to recover from a feast. This is exaggeration, but yet it's not exaggerated in such a way that it's unreal because we basically know people just like this. Even last night, I was reading an obituary. The obituary is from a couple of years ago. Someone, I'll do a little historical research, I looked at it, and one of the things this person was known for was basically attending as many parties and as many, and many fancy meals as possible, even as it contributed to physical decline. Well, something like that must have happened in this case because we're talking physical decline. This guy died after a feast, presumably wearing purple. But the first thing we need to notice is that he looks amazingly healthy and by any kind of measure of like prosperity theology, he looks, he looks God-blessed. But there's another man in the story, and that's Lazarus, and he's a poor man who is laid at his gates. And he's in such desperate situation that his body is simply marked with oozing sores. And he's so hungry that he longed to eat just what fell from the rich man's table, but no one's giving him anything. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, again, just you know by intuition and by some specific knowledge, the background here, dogs are not friends in the Bible. I know, that's shocking. Dogs are friends to you and to me. By some record, they are the fastest growing, along with other cute animals, the fastest growing segment of things that people watch on streaming video. I fell into it. I did. I did, first of all, because we miss the late Baxter, the Wonder Beagle. And uh, so, it's everyone's, well, you need a beagle video just to make you happy. Because so when you look at a dog, it's too stupid to know any better than to love you. And uh, that's what beagles are. They're low on the intelligence, but they are big in the heart. And, uh, and they're not big in intelligence either. That's why, you know, there are no trained beagle acts. Because... Uh, there you go. They're all nose and heart. That's all they got. <laughs> but man, you just look at them and you go, okay, yeah, I'm sure missed that beagle. And, and you look at that, we're just drawn to it. And, uh, and there are millions and millions of people, they're making millions of dollars with little golden retrievers and little things like this. And yeah, 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 yeah. It's the glory of God and creation. It's brain candy. That is not the way most ancient peoples would have seen dogs. Certainly not the way the Jewish people see dogs. Look at the Old Testament. Dogs were scavengers, first of all. That's why in so much of the world, including the Muslim world, even today, you see a great hesitancy about dogs because they touch dirty stuff. In fact, to know a dog is to know they revel in touching dirty stuff. They eat awful stuff. They try stuff by eating it, which, by the way, I just got to tell you, that is the worst idea. You try stuff by eating it. No, no. But they're in constant conflict, even with dead stuff. 
They're like buzzards in the Old Testament. The, the dogs come when someone dies and they are not coming to offer a blessing. They, they're scavengers in the ancient world, especially in the ancient Near East. The dogs came and licked the sores. This is a sign of the fact that they know he is about to die. They are waiting for his death, much as the buzzards flying overhead or sitting on the fence post. So you have a picture here, and it's a picture of sumptuous luxury, more food than he can eat, feasting every day, and then the, the poor man who has nothing and is so degraded that he has no place to live, he has no one to care for him, he is not eating, he longed to eat even what fell from the rich man's table. The dogs came and licked his sores, and so one man is about to die at the very door of the man who is feasting in security. And, and this is where the story gets interesting because Lazarus dies. And what we're told here is the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, that's not what the rich man planned. Uh, the rich man was, sumptuing, uh, was uh, feasting sumptuously every day. He was looking forward to the next day, and the day after that, and the day after that. Lazarus has to know that his days are running out. The arrival of the dogs has made that very clear. Lazarus dies. In this beautiful passage, he's carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died. And he is in Hades in torment, the place of the dead in torment. Now, the reversal here is just spectacular. It's a reversal in the one who had everything now has nothing. The one who had nothing now has everything. Carried by angels. You can just, just listen to that for a moment. Carried by angels to the bosom of Abraham. The most prized place in the Jewish imagination to be in the bosom of Abraham, this poor man who dies is carried. Now, I want us to notice something. There, there, there is no justification by sickness, poverty here. The, the, the fact that Lazarus is carried by angels Abraham's bosom is not credited to the fact that he was poor. But it is interesting that the rich man's presence now in torment in Hades at least had something to do with the fact that he was rich. Jesus speaks of this throughout his earthly ministry, warning us of the deceit of riches warning us of the, of the attraction of riches and warning us that those who must have riches may well sell the soul. Now again, there's no justification by poverty here and there's no condemnation by mere wealth. You have to look more closely at the story. The heart of the rich man is seen not so much in that he dared to wear purple and feast every day, but that he was quite willing for another human being made in God's image to die at his doorstep while he feasted. That's where you see the spiritual deadness of the man. And that, that's where you see the spiritual rebellion of the man. 
But in any event, the reversal has taken place, and one is now with Abraham, one is now in torment in Hades. Now, this is where the question about the parable gets really interesting, because so many of the parables are just simple stories, simple narratives, and and they come with a punch, but they have basically one point, punch, lostness, foundness, cycle of parables in Luke chapter 15. There's just a very clear setup, a very vivid picture, and then boom. Now, that's what makes the last of the parables in the lostness and foundness more interesting because the last one is not about a lost sheep and it's not about a lost coin, it's about a lost son. And even when the son is found, it turns out, unlike the first two, now the story is only beginning because there's a detour, so to speak, in the structure and now, now the story shifts from one lost son who came home to another lost son at home. All right, similar you have here, just a chapter later, you have a similar unusual development. And this one's even more unexpected in the narrative of this parable. A poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Uh, you, weren't, you weren't expecting this. Or if you were expecting it, it's just because you know the passage so well. There's a conversation between the rich man and Abraham. How does this happen? Well, you don't flatten the text as if now we need to take it into the department of systematic theology and say, okay, now, how exactly do we explain theologically a conversation between those who are in hell and torment and those who are in paradise. Don't do that. Jesus is telling us something powerful in a narrative, and there's no reason for us to believe that it didn't take place, even historically, exactly as described here. If that's what Jesus meant, that's what Jesus meant. But Jesus is clearly using the narrative and the, the, the shock of it and the, the thrill of it, all of a sudden to tell us, look, you know, Abraham sees Lazarus who is being comforted at Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side. How in the world is that? N- another little narrative trick in here. Did you notice he knows Lazarus's name? Did you notice that? Send Lazarus? He knew who Lazarus was. Even as he was dying on his doorstep, and the rich man felt nothing for him. He knew his name. He recognizes him now. But boy, things are different. Lazarus is there, and he is in hell in torment. And he asks for Abraham to send Lazarus to dip his finger in water 
and bring it to him to cool his tongue, for he is in agony in this fire. I want to make very clear. I do not believe for a moment that Jesus would have even given us a passage like this as a parable if the reality of hell were not this horrible. And the finality of it was not this clear. This is a parable in which Jesus amplifies the horror of hell and gives us a picture of hell that I believe is completely consistent with what we see described elsewhere in Scripture. And by the way, just measured by volume, Jesus in the Gospels speaks more about hell than about heaven in words of warning. You can understand the, the, the interest of the story here. Just imagine being there in Israel at the time. Just imagine being a Jewish person in the first century at the time. You may be a Pharisee. You may not. You, 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 you may not be a part of any particular group. Maybe you're just someone there in the crowd. But this has to be one of the most interesting things you've ever heard in your entire life. What's going to happen? Is Abraham going to respond to the rich man? How will he respond to the rich man? Very quickly, you know exactly what happens. But Abraham said, verse 25, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And then this statement of finality, which is very, very similar to exactly what we see in some of the straightforward statements about hell made by Jesus and what we see in the book of Revelation and in passages related to the final judgment. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Jesus makes very clear there is no post-mortem opportunity to respond to the gospel. Okay. Now, once again, we just have to stop and note, if the parable, if the passage ended there, what a whale of a story. What a powerful parable. There's a lot for us to think about. There's a lot for us to live out. There's a lot for us to, to preach about right there. We already had the great reversal with, with the rich man now in Hades and Lazarus comforted in Abraham's side. Now we have this amazing dialogue in which Lazarus, there at Abraham's bosom is not even speaking. It's, it's, it's the rich man who evidently thinks he's still in charge who says, look, Abraham, send Lazarus, dip his tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in agony in this flame. Abraham, no, can't do that. Sorry. Great chasm's been fixed. If, that, if, that's, if that's where the passage ended, then we would have an astounding even elaboration of what was already an incredible passage but it doesn't end there either. The rich man's not done. He's about to be done. Look at verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. So there's a bit of concern here for his brothers. And notice, it's a family firm. Five brothers. His plan is that Lazarus would just go back, you know, having been dead, just not stay long, knock on the door, 
Brothers come to the door, probably chewing something. Yeah. Get up from the table, push the chair back, go to the door. What's going on? Who's bothering us? Lazarus. Guy drops his napkin. You're dead. So I am. Your brother asked me to come to you. Your brother in hell asked me to come to you. By the way, I'm in Abraham's bosom being comforted. I'm headed right back. And, uh, but asked me to come and just tell you that you need to repent lest you also come to this place to torment. Just uh, he who has ears, let him hear. Going back to Abraham's bosom. He's, he's got a clear picture in mind. He thinks that if Lazarus, who is dead, now shows up, then his brothers will repent. And, and that's an astounding thing. I mean, frankly, just look at this. You consider the power of Jesus' teaching and you consider the shocking nature of his teaching. I've known this passage my entire adult life and it still shocks me. The parable continues, the passage continues. Notice what Abraham says. Abraham, God bless him. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. They have the Bible. It's the way of talking about the Old Testament scriptures. They have the Bible, let them hear them. They have the Bible. And the rich man says, no father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay, very quickly, what do we learn here? Well, we learned this was actually, from the beginning, all about the power of Scripture. We learned that from the beginning, this was all about the power of God's word. It turns out that this passage was all about the fact that those who will not hear and obey and trust the Bible, they're not going to believe no matter what supposed revelation or sign may come their way. It's just a good reminder to us that those who say, look, yeah, I just heard the Bible, but what have you got to kind of clinch the deal? The Bible clinches the deal. What have you got as, a, as further evidence? No, the inerrant, infallible word of God, that's, that's all the evidence we got. I, I want to hear God's word. Well, you just heard it, brother. You just heard it, sister. You want to hear God speak? Open the book. So that's all there. And it's there with this thunderous judgment that if they will not hear the Bible, Moses and the prophets, then they actually won't believe even if someone should rise from the dead. You demand a miracle? A sign in order to believe that the Bible is true? Well, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get it. You know, in the strange way, in the strange way, we do understand there's something else at work here, right? Because those who do trust the Bible do actually have the affirming act. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
those who believe the scripture and hear the word of God, the sign of the resurrection, the physical glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead makes perfect sense. But if you won't hear the Bible, you don't believe in the resurrection either. And that, again, is the story of theological liberalism. You begin by saying, that part's not plausible. And the next thing you know, none of it's plausible. If the world's looking for for plausible, plausible gets you a considerable distance in this life. But the rich man will tell you, plausibility is not a plan for eternity. In terms of earthly standards, if you don't hear the word of God and you will not hear the scriptures, then you will not be saved. If you will not hear the scriptures, nothing is going to bring you to faith in Christ. Nothing is going to bring you into obedience. All right, so this is a passage that turns out to be about the word, the word of God. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will be they convinced if someone should rise from the dead, and it's spoken by the one who rose from the dead. All right. Said I was going to end by telling you a story. This one hits close to home, so let's just, I just ask you to hear this and just understand it because it's about this room. It's, it's about this room in the year 1987. I realize that's before most of you in this room were born. The room was here. 1987, the Mullins Lectures on Preaching were delivered by Professor Fred Craddock of the Candler School of Divinity at Emory University. He had a week, uh, which meant at the time, he had Tuesday and Thursday uh, chapels, and uh, two other chapels were added to the schedule because of the weight of the lectures he was giving. And let me just tell you, it was an academic lectureship, and you know, that I think you should be rapidly excited about such things, but you don't show equal excitement about all of them. Well, it tells you something that the crowd just grew over the week and grew and grew because of the compelling nature of the Mullins lectures being delivered. Uh, Dr. Craddock was a specialist in the Gospel of Luke and he was a pioneer of what was called inductive preaching. He had written a book decades earlier entitled As One Without Authority. And in that book he suggested that we are in an age in which Authority is in decline, and that includes all authority, and that means the authority of the Word of God, and it means the preacher's authority. And so the preacher's task is to try to basically rescue some meaning from the biblical text that modern people might be able to connect to in some kind of existential way. And he was a master of narrative. He was a master of telling a story. He was the master of laying out the narrative, which is why that crowd grew and grew and grew and grew in this room for an academic lectureship. I have probably listened to his lecture that included his exposition of this passage. I'm not kidding you. I have probably over the course of the years listened to it 50 or 60 times. 
Being in the room at the time, it was one of the most significant rhetorical events I had ever experienced. Dr. Craddock's understanding of preaching was that, as I said, authority's in decline, and that means also the authority of the Word of God. And so what modern preachers must try to do is to connect some kind of hopeful impulse from the text that will give people encouragement and insight and he would use words like gospel, and, and he meant that in terms of good news, but it was, it was rather filtered into a far less doctrinal, far less evangelical understanding. There was no indication that the part of the passage about heaven and hell was to be considered in any doctrinal sense. And the word of God that he pointed out so brilliantly was the very point of the passage was not the scripture, it was in scripture. And part of what inductive preaching was supposed to be about was catching people off guard so that God's word as more or less kind of in neo-orthodoxy as act, this, this thing that's in the word of God but isn't the word of, uh, that isn't the text, it's in the Bible but it's not all the Bible. And because of the fact we're all individuals, individual different needs and different experiences, different parts of God's word may become God's word to you, that may become God's word to you, that may become God's word to you, that may become God's word to me. Now, all I want to point out is, is that if that's rescuing preaching, it's not much of a rescue. I, I want to repeat, it drew crowds. The crowds got bigger through the week. To be in that rhetorical event was an astounding experience, so much so that I still have conversation every once in a while with some people who are also in the room, and out of all the experiences that took place in this chapel throughout all those years, it's interesting how many make reference to that one week. And yet, Dr. Craddock's approach was an attempted rescue of some kind of voice of God from the text that's not an inerrant, infallible, propositionally, verbally inspired text, but is there in the text. Inductive preaching means you don't preach propositionally. You don't preach didactively. You preach suggestively. We've got to end. I just have to tell you that when I look at this passage, I wanted to share it with you. I have never preached this passage in this room until now. 1987, until now. It took a bit of prompting for me to preach this passage in this room now because I'm old enough to come into this room and see ghosts. But I'm not looking at ghosts, I'm looking at you. And I want you to recognize that in its own way, I hope that preaching of the text and this preaching of the text sets the issue clearly. 
Because if this isn't about the Bible, I don't know what it's about. If Jesus wasn't saying, through Abraham, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, then they will not believe, even if one should rise from the dead. And what he meant was, you gotta go back to Moses and prophets and try to hear the word of God in what they said. Then I have no idea how to do any of this stuff assigned to us here. I do know this. I think it's really, really clear that what Jesus was saying, with authority, not without authority, with all authority, was that if we will not hear Moses and the prophets, then we will not believe. If we will not hear the scripture, then we will not believe, even if one should rise from the dead. At the end of the day, the word of God is the holy scripture for us. And our entire task in this life is to hear it and to believe it, to stake our lives on it, to teach it and to preach it and to take it to the ends of the earth. So, I have unburdened myself of Luke 16. I pass this, I've preached this passage over the years in many different places. It seemed right to preach it here, now, to you. Not so much because the preacher is one with authority. That's not the point. But because the word of God is the sole final authority for knowing anything. Even the difference between heaven and hell. And most importantly, the way to heaven. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. May we hear it, we pray in God's name. In Christ's name, amen.